Audible Men. Today, my guest is Michelle Jackson Mannix. She's an entrepreneur in the food world. She joins us from Brooklyn. Life experience is something that Michelle has a PhD in. So today's conversation will resonate with many, I believe. I'm going to run through just a few of her roles in the last 13 years or so. She's the founder of the following businesses, the cafe, Ted and Honey, the catering company, Parker Red, and most recently, Cookspace, a culinary studio, school, and event space. Like all of us, Michelle has been affected by COVID when it comes to business. Cookspace closed last fall due to the pandemic, but that didn't slow Michelle down. She's also a career transition advisor, the creator of the Seize Your Days Planner, and she's working on a new book called a new mindset in the kitchen, life beyond the recipe. Today, we'll be discussing the ins and outs of owning a restaurant, what it's like to jump into the book publishing world, and the future. What's the next big business that's likely to emerge in 2021? So I'll start by asking, as we always do, Michelle, have you eaten yet? And if you have, what did you eat today? I have, of course. And thank you for having me. As I said moments ago, you are a breath of fresh air in this space. And the few episodes I've had a chance to listen to really resonated with me. So I'm super thrilled to be here. Uh, I'm an early bird, so I've eaten a few times today. (laughs) I had breakfast tacos, which I have eggs every day. That's like my main I built a business around an egg sandwich, um, breakfast tacos, and then I had some heated up leftover Indian takeout for lunch just before this. Awesome. I had a breakfast burrito as well, so I'm feeling you. Um, So, Michelle, since we have so much to talk about, I'm going to go right in and I'm going to kick off our conversation It's going to be a little different for listeners. I'm going to weave in some current events, stuff that we're dealing in the world. Um, So Michelle can be like, so glad I don't own a restaurant and then circle back around and dive right in and let Michelle take over. So I'm going to kick off the conversation by reminding you, Michelle, of some of the lows of owning a restaurant that you currently don't have to deal with. But for you, just a little bit that we've talked and emailed, I imagine it's like watching reality TV while you're listening to this, like a part of you wants to stress, that addictive, insane restaurant tour part of you, but the holistic, rational side of you will say, I am so glad I don't own a restaurant right now. So I should add, like everything with this podcast, yes, this is like therapy, a place for me to vent with someone who fully understands. And today that person is Michelle. Uh, By the way, shout out to my favorite hospitality law firm, Helbron Levy. This is not an ad, but all during COVID, they are keeping me updated about issues like the ones I'm about to discuss And with PPP, with everything, I've never even, I plan on using them in the future if I renew my lease for my restaurant, but a godsend. So they've been so helpful um, with the free advice that they uh, email out. So very grateful for it. So uh, right now, our friends at the Liquor Authority are visiting restaurants a lot these days, and that has all of us hyper aware every day. Every service 
it's something that I've got to stay on my team about and myself about. And it's just this underlying stress when it comes to liquor. Um, They are issuing summary suspension. So that's when they effectively shut you down on the spot. This latest trend is all dedicated to COVID. The SLA will say public health and welfare would be in jeopardy if you were allowed to continue operating. And then they issue a list of alleged COVID violations a few days later. And this is everywhere. I mean, this is Manhattan, Brooklyn, all of Long Island. It's so many restaurants are affected. And it could be as small as something as customers not having a mask on when they entered because we didn't have, you know, a hostess there at that very second. And we have to run up and say, put on your mask. And, And it happened to be an SLA officer was there at the moment. You're getting a suspension. The restaurant has two choices when this happens. Settle and pay a hefty fine or fight the case. Whatever choice you make, you can't serve alcohol while it's being worked out. And if you fight it, count on the battle taking three to six months. If you pay, you can get your license back in a few weeks. The fines I read about were ten dollars to $15,000. What does this mean? The state needs money. We, we bought our restaurant from my father-in-law, who had it for many, 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 many years, like 40-something years. Um, and we had our own, with the transfer, when we bought, bought the restaurant, had our own issues with the SLA, Michelle. I don't know if you've ever had this, but we didn't have a liquor license for over a year. And it was hell. You know, like you think, yes. oh, you're, you know, it's it's something very simple and da 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 da. But they it's they never have simple. <laughs> very very few licenses, you know, meetings and very few points for you to go to those meetings and you know, like three meetings a a month. But then they have summers off. They're like off for like a month and a half. It's it's wackadoo. So when I talk about this for listeners who are just customers and not in the industry, it's incredibly stressful. You know, it really is. Go ahead. Hearing you is making me have literal PTSD because it's a reminder of, honestly, as my therapist would say, like you feel it in your body when you own a restaurant and when you're describing all these things. And there is some level of talking about therapy trauma bonding. I do miss the restaurant industry in weird ways, but there are, I, I've had to close or chosen to close places Three times, Sandy destroyed our commercial kitchen in Parker Red six weeks after building it. You know, closing Ted and Honey was its own thing. COVID closed cook space. But all of what you're describing is just you go through on a regular basis owning a restaurant. You're always on some level at war, I feel like. It sounds dramatic, but you're someone later described to me that because I couldn't understand the feeling of when I stopped for the first time, what it was that was so difficult to articulate. Because when you're not there, when you have a great team that's helping things run and, and you think like, oh, this, I can do this, even if it's two days, it's never not on your mind. You're like a fireman. You're waiting for something to happen. And that something could be the health department, which will wreak havoc financially. It will cause major stress in a shift, major. They're not there for the public health. They are there for fines. Mm-hmm. And they use that power, at least in the city, or when something breaks, because that ruins service. And that also financially can ruin you for you know all those things keep you on edge. 
Fully, fully, a thousand percent. And not just this, but then this next topic I'm going to talk about, this is something that my husband sat and I, both of us yesterday, and had to deal with this. Um, not because we were hit with the lawsuit, but because we, it was like, I'd, this is the second time I'd heard about it. And I believe like when you hear something once, it's a knock, you know, then someone's shoving you, then they're just punching you in the face. I'm like, I'm not waiting for a third time. Yes. So the next thing up, restaurants are being targeted in website ADA compliance lawsuits. Now, the first time I heard about this was summer 2019. A bunch of vineyards out here. Michelle, you're familiar. You have a house out here on the North Fork of Long Island. Um, A bunch of vineyards were dealing with this out here. Also some restaurants in Riverhead randomly. Um, and many of the people who were behind the lawsuits, it ha- many of them happened towards the end of the summer, and they were from people who were visiting from the city. Um, so here's the deal. Someone claims that your restaurant's website is not accessible to a person with vision impairments. If your website offers services, allows customers to place orders, or even has a link to your menu... The website must be properly configured to allow it to be accessed by visually impaired people. Just like the Liquor Authority, uh, those fines, settlements are in the ten dollars to $15,000 range. Plus, you'd have to cover the legal fees for both the person bringing the lawsuit to you and your own legal fees. Um, our website is super basic, but our menu is on there. So now we have to pay an additional $50 per month to protect our business from what I consider scammers. Now, this is in a time when every dollar counts for us, and these people are attacking restaurants during a pandemic. And what really pisses me off is similar to the service dog routine that people try to flex in restaurants (laughs) that I've been threatened plenty of times with. These scammers are taking advantage of a situation and exploiting ADA guidelines. They're not truly trying to positively improve accessibilities for people with vision impairments, which I'm all for. These scammers are trying to make a quick dollar. So one of my coworkers actually reminded me that eight years ago or so, another scam was happening in the city and the restaurant she worked at had to settle and pay. At that time, scammers would go through Craigslist job ads. And if you posted gender specific roles, you'd be hit with a lawsuit. Something like 20 restaurants within a couple block radius were hit with lawsuits, all because they posted ads saying waiter or waitress instead of server or hostess and not including host as well. Again, the scammers weren't trying to positively impact and move our industry forward when it comes to gender neutral job listings. They were cashing in and affecting both large and small restaurants. So Michelle, that was your trip down memory lane. (laughs) (laughs) You're not missing anything. Um, I I do miss some of the, 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 the finer points, but you, you, you paint a very accurate picture of some of the things that are behind the scenes for the public a lot, you know, the, the, the nuances and the nuisances and that are very real and a huge part of this business. Especially when like you own small businesses. It's not like, you know, when you own a small business, you're doing everything, you know, 
you're dealing with unemployment risk. You're dealing with it. You're, you're the one dealing with everything. You outsource here and there. Yeah. Like I'm best friends with my accountant now. Thank God, you know, like they're there all the time to help, but you are everything. You're HR, you're, you're doing everything. So those yes, little- and there's a perception similar to Instagram where I think as we were talking about the culture of food, which has been great, right? People love food now and they love chefs and they want to support all this. But it's also created an interesting uh, false perception. And for me, I don't know if you felt this, when your restaurant has any modicum of success, when it's even remotely busy, there's an assumption that you are just like sitting high in the hog and money just must be rolling in and you've got all these resources and you're right that you're not doing anything. I mean, almost every time I interviewed someone, you know, they would say things like, this place is so cute. And, and it was, but I'm like, it gets old really fast. And, you know, three times out of three days a week, I have a plunger in my hand and I'm running to the bank to get, to get quarters and ones and to have cash to pay. It's not as glamorous as we think, you know, and my office was in this like dungeon basement underneath the boiler. Oh yeah. But it's like people, you know, have this idea that this is the, and, and it is glamorous in ways that I find glamorous. I like packing boxes. I like moving through a restaurant. I like, I truly do like working with my hands and being around people in that, not in that typical, I like people because I actually don't like people a lot sometimes. Right. And that's always challenging, as you know, when you're in a restaurant that for sure. I mean, you you like the dance of service, which we yes. like I could never imagine. Like, I'm not a work in the office woman. You know, I don't want to be in a cubicle, but I want to observe and be a part of that energy of a service. Yes, for sure. For real. I mean, that's the glamorous, quote unquote, part, you know, if, if anyone's thinking that. Um, yeah, that's the part that lures you in, right? It's the romance. It's what you want. You want to be around that. You want to build that. You want to create that. Whatever version of that, your story of that is, it that's really magical. And when you can do that, it is priceless. And it does make you deal with all the stuff that for you were sure. talking about. And it makes it a little bit more palatable at times. For sure. And I just, you know here on this platform, I just try to balance it. So it's like, yes, you know, we're talking about this cool, passionate, you know, creative body of work that we put out there that we love and we love being there, but there is a lot of shit too with it. Like with anything. (laughs) I'm a big fan of the yes. And right. Yes. And well, so I want about being truthful and being honest. Yeah. And that's why I appreciate your voice. Thank you. Well, I want to point out some additional key elements to your story, Michelle. Um, Fascinating. You worked in corporate marketing until the age of 35, then decided to jump into the food world. Part of me identifies with you, and I respect your hustle on a very deep level because you accomplished, I mean, for me, so much in what I consider a relatively short amount of time. One thing that people... And one thing that people might not fully understand, but I know you do, and you kind of just touched on it, Michelle, is that instantly you're a public figure when you decide to own a small restaurant or cafe. 
You're constantly interacting with people. You're putting a piece of yourself out there. You're opening yourself up for people to connect with you sometimes very deeply and sometimes judge you. And while we were exchanging emails leading up to this interview, the words that you you wrote in just a very simple email, you weren't, uh, I don't think, you know, I think they just kind of rolled off. Like we were just going back and forth and though it hit me in a very profound way. So I'm actually going to take a few seconds. I'm going to read what you wrote word for word. Quote, honestly, the one regret I have when Ted and Honey closed is not being truly honest about why we closed. I said to the New York Times when they called to ask why that I wanted to spend time with my family. While part of that was true, I wish I'd been more honest and brave then to say what I really felt, which was a lot of this, that this beloved place felt like it was built on sand, that while the majority of our customers were great, the few entitled assholes ruin entire shifts. That fear of the health department and something breaking can take over your life. Well, yes, we were insanely busy and supported local farms and places. We slash me retained barely any of it. And we're sitting on a mountain of debt. Michelle, take me back to the day that the New York Times called. What's going through your mind while they're interviewing you? That was interesting to hear back. <laughs> and to be fair, they didn't, I didn't speak to them directly. Uh, but it was an interesting couple of days when you choose to close a restaurant, if you ever do, it's bittersweet. It's a divorce. It's a divorce from a restaurant family. And when you have a restaurant in a neighborhood that you've never lived more than three blocks from the whole duration, and it's an all day cafe, it's a different level of relationship with people. Regulars for me came every day for years. I watched people get married, have children, get divorced, die. It was beautiful and intense and complicated. To be honest, when they called, my favorite barista, Billy, and as you can relate, when you have people you lean on, they know you. He took the call and phoned me and I lived close enough to say like, oh, I'll call right back. And I don't even remember if I did or he did, but I just said, tell him I want to spend time because there wasn't one answer why I did it. I wanted it to stop. And what I mean by it, when you have a business where you do what we did and it's not to brag, but we made everything from scratch, as you know, that takes labor it takes time and space. So we had another Parker Red mainly to kind of do a lot of things, but it became bigger, right? 24-7, you know, 365. And back then, I just didn't feel like people in our industry and in our culture talked about failures the way they do now. As I mentioned earlier, the perception of what's happening. It was a beloved part of our neighborhood. I was proud of that. You know, we served people next to a park. They came in all the time. And Cobble Hill's an interesting neighborhood. It's very affluent. I lived here. I, I was a renter. And you come into these places and it's you're serving people you, you live amongst too. 
So there were a lot of layers to it. And I wish I'd said those things to help other people know that it may not be what you think. And there were a lot of good, but also a lot of bad. And, you know, the idea of supporting a local economy and saying goodbye to a neighborhood cafe that really meant a lot to a place, I'm, I'm proud to say it did mean a lot to Cobble Hill. And I still hear that. And it's interesting because even though COVID closed Cookspace, my mo most recent business, my heart and my grief and my pain around anything really go always goes back to Ted and Honey. It's more special when you have that day-to-day -day relationship with customers versus Cookspace was a uniquely interesting, you know, you went there for a class or an event. You know, that long answer, I don't know if that's kind of helps, but it, for example, when Gabrielle Hamilton recently pointed out that she had a couple thousand in her bank account when she decided to close before at the very first week, I think that a lot of people were really, really, really shocked by that. You know, she's someone that's been around for a long time and hustles and it's a small place. And I think people like you or I could see that she wasn't making millions of dollars, but I bet everybody else thought she was. Oh, yeah. When they saw her on Mind of a Chef, you know, and they read her books, they don't, they, of course they assume that. Yeah. So the reality is I was running a nonprofit and I realized that I needed to care for myself a little bit more for a change. And I really liked that role because as a hospitality person, you're caring for people at the end of the day. You're caring for a lot of people, your staff, first and foremost, hopefully your vendors that you hopefully like choose well and you, you think about all this stuff, but that's, that's kind of exhausting after many years you're caring and then for customers. So the idea of you exposing somehow the idea that customers aren't always right is validating, you know, to talk about therapy, it's validating because that, that hasn't always been the chorus in our space. I can't keep, working day in and day out as the owner and barista, runner, bus, or server, you name it every day and Mother. love it. Right. I, I can't do that if if we don't change that concept. You know, and if it's, you're not fundamentally respected. Right. Right. Fundamentally respected. And when right. I reflect back now, because hindsight is 2020, it's been five years. Just like with race, there's microaggressions that we face in the hospitality industry all the time. Yes. And so what I mean by that, it's like, I feel like one of the beauties of being able to be in this industry, despite all full disclosure, never making any money, never, literally being in debt. It's been a privilege for me because it's been the one space where I've been able different to corporate America to have my values actually live through what I do. And I am a believer in shopping local and I'm not a crazy person, not judging people are where everything has to be organic or everything because it never can be, as you know, it's like, it just, there's, there's economics at play, but the little microaggressions I mean, where you're doing everything possible to support a space and someone will walk in with like a copy from somewhere else and be like, I'm so sorry, but, and you're like, just the cluelessness of how that does affect. I was a coffee shop, <laughs> like, you know, or the way that people, as you point out, time is money. Every time that I have to overextend to deal with your perceived need that is 
beyond the boundary of a normal service relationship. You're taking advantage of my ability to be dealing with where I really need to be. Right. Yeah. So we're going to move on to your book. So you are working on a book called A New Mindset in the Kitchen, Life Beyond the Recipe. When I was researching you, I came across an interview and in it, you briefly touched on writing your book proposal after the closure of Ted and Honey. And this is my takeaway. My takeaway was that from the little bit that I heard that the publishers were saying, oh, wait, you don't have a restaurant anymore? Almost implying and asking in a way, are you still relevant? And A, was I hearing that correctly or no? You were hearing that 100% correctly, and I'm happy to expand upon it (laughs) because it's interesting. And that's another thing that I think people would be happy to understand that I didn't know. For sure. So, okay, I'm glad that I heard that and saw you in that moment. Um, That got me fired up probably because I can totally see this playing out. These publishers needing you to pretty much be self-sustainable in every way possible, AKA be your own promotions department. And in my opinion, relevancy is completely made up in this world that we're in, in the food world. Many times you pay for relevancy by way of reviews from critics or editorial magazines, or articles rather, aka paid articles, paid Instagram posts from food magazines and food influencers, the list goes on and on. And sadly, most customers can never tell the difference. So when my restaurant is written up, it's authentic. And that's why we are rarely written up. We don't have an advertising budget and we don't really believe in it. We're not haters. If that's what you want to do, totally cool. But for us, it's a fine line to play when it comes to authenticity. And thanks to HBO's documentary, Fake Famous, if you haven't seen it, I just watched it last week. Now everyone knows how easy it is to buy bots on Instagram. So restaurants, restaurateurs are guilty of this. Buying Instagram followers, buying likes, buying comments. And usually you can easily tell if a restaurant has, let's say, 20,000 followers, but gets 80 likes on a post, nine times out of 10, you bought your followers, but you forgot to buy likes for that specific post. So is Instagram playing a role when it comes to a new author's relevancy? Please tell me all about your experience in the world of book publishing. Yes, I'm really happy that you brought this up, actually, because as you probably saw from my new website that, you know, it says that I'm currently working on this. I've been working on this since January of 2016. When I closed Ted and Honey, as I'm sure you can appreciate, I was not the chef, but I did everything else. Right. And I was on the line probably one time when someone didn't show up on time and I actually did go to culinary school and I have been a line cook and have driven plenty of trucks and done it all. Right. But so when Ted and Honey closed and my identity was completely wrapped up in that business and I was lost, I asked myself, what do I have to say? What am I going to do with my life? You know, I made this career change at 35 at this point. I'm, I don't know how old I am, 45 at this point. 
So I decided that what I did have to say was that I am a good home cook, a really good home cook, despite being a restaurateur and having gone to cook, cooking school and a line cook. But that we talked about earlier that I feel like the culture of food has hijacked not a lot more than just perception of restaurant industry, but our confidence in the kitchen. And it's made us spectators instead of active participants in the most basic way we can take care of ourselves in a world that has co-opted the term self-care to be a billion dollar industry and wellness to be in the food media and no one knows what to make for dinner. And they have refrigerators filled with food that spoils and endless cookbooks. And when people were around me, but when I was coming up with this theory, certainly, yes, if you came to my house, you'd love what I made. But it wouldn't, you were married to a chef, it wouldn't be anything that you're like, oh my God. But what people used to say is you make it look so easy and you throw it together. And I thought, well, that is true. It is easy for me. And then I reverse engineered and I'm like, why? And I came up with this whole theory of this book and I put it together and I spent months on a nonfiction book proposal and I literally months. I mean, I had no job. And Cobble Hill is a very affluent neighborhood. And I had the benefit of having a lot of media people. We used to get a lot of press. I never paid for press. You saw that press because they used to come to the restaurant. So they, it was real deal. You know, I reached out to a couple people that used to come and they were, I love Ted and honey. I'll entertain this idea. And I met with all the big agents, CAA, William Morris Endeavor. And you're right. Wow, this is interesting. And then as soon as I said I closed, oh, you're nobody. You don't, I'm like, oh, what do you mean? You don't have, you don't have, I didn't do Instagram. I, I mean, our, our Ted Honey picked it up in the end, but it wasn't a thing. I said, what about people that just have good ideas? What about that happiness project person? I never heard of her before. Well, she had a great book proposal. So I said, fine, I'll, I'll work on it. I don't, I don't want to go that route. I want to just work on my idea and my proposal. And I worked on it again. And luckily this agent did believe in me and the message on some level and was willing to pitch it. But it was the same thing. Publishers love, one publisher loved the idea, but I have what's not, what I, I had no, what they call an author platform. So of course I'm like, well, excuse my language, what the fuck's a platform? And obviously I know I used to be in marketing, but it's basically... If you don't have the ability to sell books, they're not going to give you a book deal. And the ability to sell books is measured by how many people you have on Instagram and how many people engage. And there's a million metrics. But so what I decided to do was, as you can appreciate, and excuse my language again, I'm like, fuck it. I'll just make a business around this idea. And as part of building a platform, but not to get the book deal. You know what I mean? Like, I had this idea. I did believe in it. I still wanted to be in this business, but I didn't want it to take over my life. So I thought, well, this will be like a happy medium. This can be a place where I can impart my values and still be in this business on some level and, and, and build this platform. And, and I thought we did a great job of building a unique platform. You know, we had a really amazing newsletter that I can say this because I didn't do it. And I hired the person that worked with me that covered food. From a real different angle, we had a great community. You know, Instagram took years, but it because we did it ourselves, just like you, 7,000 people. And, and that still wasn't enough. After all of that, podcasts, Goop, the New York Times, I mean, you name it, it still isn't enough. So I may 
do this book on my own, just like I did my planner, but I may not. I, you know, maybe someone eventually in the food world will be brave enough to say like, this is a need, this is an idea. And, and we can sell this without this, this previously proven only idea that Instagram is the only way that commerce works these days. So it, I mean, do publishing houses, they have to have a promotions department, no? Not really. They really give you no money. And to be honest, again, just to unveil things, and you'll love this comment, one of my other regulars, one of the leading literary agents in cookbooks. I saw him recently. Oh, by the way, I might, because my former literary agent got laid off because of COVID. I still work with her. She, you know, believed in the idea, just knows the marketplace. And he said to me, oh, because I said, I can, I still have this proposal. I even edited it again for a third time, made it even more modern. Well, you know, you really need a platform. A platform. And I thought, what do you think that I've been doing for the past four years? I had a brick and mortar space that had thousands of people that come in, Instagram, a newsletter, Pinterest. So I spent, you know, you, you're right, but no, you don't get a budget. You don't get you get a book deal. The average book deal for a nonfiction book is about $10,000. And then you get about 50 cents for every book. If, if a book's, you know, $20, you might get 50 cents per, you know, you're not talking. It's again, it's like the a restaurant business. You're not, it's not making money. Got it. Got it. You're making money. Maybe if you're selling novels in the millions, but I'm talking about a nonfiction, you know, self-helpy book in the kitchen. Well, and do you feel, I feel like there's so many cookbooks and food books and wine books. And there, there's so many books being published. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I, like, I, it's kind of like hard. Like, I don't understand why this is. So all of these people have 10,000 plus Instagram followers. At, 15, I, I heard is the minimum. 15 is the minimum before someone will even like, think that you're even maybe ready to even maybe get a book proposal. 15,000. All right. Well, I don't know if you've watched it, but uh fake famous. If I have and I saw the um, advertisement and I mean, social dilemma was scary enough. Oh, I know. Did you see that one? Oh, but, um, completely. Yeah. It's, uh, I think that it's going to go. We never, Instagram isn't going to be here forever. No, it's not. And we have to be prepared for at some point, there is going to be another medium that will gather our attention and hopefully it will be different. But um, but it's crazy because when you watch Fake Famous, it's a social experiment. It's, it's making fun of it, but you quite literally are buying everything. And the bot farm business is such a big business. There's so much money in it that Instagram depends on that for their proof of, oh, look at how many users we have. And so it benefits everybody. So you could easily go and buy 15,000 followers and call it a day. And I'm sure there are a lot of people in the food world are doing that. And that's why they've got these book deals. Yes. And they're very, it's soulless. I mean, I did hire a PR person when I opened Cookspace because it wasn't in a neighborhood. I didn't have people walking in and out. I didn't have word of mouth. It was on the second floor of a warehouse and it was a $120 three-hour commitment you made an appointment for. This was a whole different culinary concept. So I had to get an in, in Instagram and PR. And you'll appreciate this when I inter 
I like the PR firm, but they brought in a new person to talk about social media strategy. And she was so arrogant about how she doesn't go to restaurants unless they have this certain Instagram following and this and that. It was so tone deaf knowing that I personally had just closed one for eight years that I maybe had Instagram the last year. I don't know. I didn't do it. It wasn't a big part of our business. It's insulting. It's insulting to what we do. If your only choice of a restaurant is from their Instagram, it's insulting to me because there's a lot of effort and a lot of things that go into it. And all the people that love my restaurant, they weren't there because of the Instagram. No. Wow. Well, that's a uh, thank you for educating us. Yeah. And I'm still working on it. And who knows? You never, you know, it's like when I say working on it, I don't know what form this could take. You know, it took the form of a business. And it took the form of a lot of content for a while. And maybe it'll just take a rest for a little. But I still am really super passionate about the idea that I think recipes hold you back from learning. And they keep you out of the flow. And they it's like driving with MapQuest directions printed out. You will you maybe got there. You probably got in a fight with your driver or co-driver. And you'll never get there again. You will never know how to do that again. You don't know what you're doing. You just are simply mastering how to follow instructions. I, I think we aged ourselves there. Not everyone knows about the map quest. Totally. Right I know. It's not always <laughs> the do. best example. <laughs> I do. Shit. <laughs> and you probably remember the fight you had oh, whoever you're driving with. For sure. <laughs> um, well, you know, what I find disheartening about that is this reality is a uh, if we're measuring people's Instagram followers for the content that I'm seeing on bookshelves or online to purchase and read, that that's, that sucks because that lets me know there are millions of authors that I would love to be reading that can't even have that chance. Well, it makes you feel like the hustle because you appreciate the hustle. So do I, right? Yeah. So, but, but it makes you recognize that the people have to dissect their hustle. They have to hustle not only for whatever art they created, whatever content, whatever novels, nonfiction, then they have to like create a, a brand about themselves. Right. That is a dissected hustle that the average person shouldn't have to do if they don't want to. I don't, I fully see that a lot of people want that. They want that. That's what they're actually seeking. That's why it was interesting to realize, book, you, it, this, these are the financials. I don't want to be a famous person. I actually am more of an introvert. Believe it or not, hospitality was a way for me to kind of hide behind my brand, kind of hide behind the cash register. Even though you're forward facing, I knew when to go down to the basement when I needed somebody else up there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> With COVID, we've had to absorb a lot of uh, uh, positions. And so I love the fact that now our hostess area is more of a hybrid. So we've got, you know, server hostess type of thing. So I don't have to be up there. You'll find me if you want to seek me out. I'll be back there making your coffee drinks. I'm the barista. I'm the bartender. And I love it. It is Mm -hmm. so freeing that I don't have to deal with these people and personalities because I too is an, am an introvert. And when I get home from work, I don't want to see and talk to anyone. 
No, yeah, because that's all you've been doing all day in a, in a very gregarious way, in an extroverted way, right? Yeah. I mean, I would say, morning, morning, I knew your order, got, it was like, yeah. but then after, you're like, you're dead. You're yeah. literally just like depleted. Yeah. And I've also taken a step back, you'll, you'll uh, find this interesting, with COVID and everything and, and you know, just training customers and, and taking a stance, um, I don't bullshit anymore. If I don't like your energy and I was faking it before, 2020, it just unleashed everything with COVID. I don't fake it anymore. If I don't want to bullshit with you, I'm not going to your table and putting in that extra effort. For fucking what? You know, like you, you I, I really appreciated that, you know, hearing that in you. It's like, it's about boundaries. Also, it's like not allowing yourself to be treated a certain way. Yeah. And, and the, not being able to be victim to the perception that you were <gasps> rude to a customer. No, they were rude to you first. Right. And when it's totally. And it's not a first, like a kid that's like, he did it first, but it's like, let's. Let's just be honest about what is actually taking place when these things happen. For sure. And I save my energy now and I had to learn to save my energy. And we save it for the people who are, these customers are extraordinary. There's so many beautiful customers that you know. That make everything great, right? Yes. You value me and respect me. I value you and respect you. And this is beautiful. We're having a moment and I. Yes. I value and I love that moment, you know? Yes. And that you feel it. And that's one of those many reasons why we like this industry. For sure. Yeah. Well, let's move to the future. Um, My favorite focus. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> let's move on. So we're going to move on to the future and discuss what we believe the next big business is. Um, for me, I'm going to keep it local to New York State today. As far as I'm concerned, the future is weed. Um, I'm a big fan of this movement. Uh, it's long overdue, in my opinion. And just last week, every time I walk down the street in Manhattan, I was in there getting my hair cut last week. What do I smell? Weed. And not trash weed. The most beautiful smelling strains you can imagine. And let me point out for listeners in other states and countries, it's decriminalized in New York City, not legal. And every single block right now, you smell weed. So I can only imagine what it's going to be like when it's legalized. And the time is coming. All signs point to April 1st for a cannabis legalization plan in the governor's budget proposal. Uh, why is this expected to pass? Because New York State is broke, quite frankly, thanks to COVID. Uh, we need money. What generates more money? Revenue. What generates more revenue? If you legalize and tax a new commodity, you create a new industry. In turn, you create more jobs, more spending. Cool. Good economy. Now, if this proposal is included in the budget and it gets approved on April 1st, again, Hellbron and Levy coming through with great intel, they're hearing that the state would push to get applications live by the summer or fall of this year, 2021. And they would essentially be writing the code as they go. And I'm quoting Helbron and Levy here, quote, if the other legal jurisdictions are any indicators, there will be a cons constant evolution of the code and the rules here. So if you think about that, that prohibition and when, you know, alcohol was legalized. It, it's, it's an exciting time. And so from a restaurant standpoint, 
when I read this and as, as I've been hearing more in the past couple of weeks, my mind is moving fast. It's new. It's exciting. I'm asking, what does this mean? I'm talking to everyone about it. Will cannabis tasting menus suddenly be a thing? Can I upcharge if someone wants cannabis infused butter on their hot cake? Of course, we're carding people, I imagine, just like with alcohol, making sure they're of the age requirement to take part in recreational weed. Or will none of this be allowed? You know, we have no idea. We saw how behind New York State was when it came to CBD, specifically how the New York City Health Department handled that by banning CBD, suddenly banning it, and deciding to not allow restaurants there to add CBD to food and drinks after it had previously been on the menu. After that, even out here in Suffolk County, I felt that CBD was in a gray zone across the state when it came to restaurants, and I stopped selling our CBD latte just to be safe. Um, Michelle, what do you see emerging in the food world, if you could imagine, you know, in your wildest dreams yes. when it comes to legalizing recreational marijuana? And also, if there's any additional business trends that you personally see coming onto the scene in 2021 or ones that interest you? Well, I don't know if you know this, but you unpacked a, a big uh, question for me. So this might be a big one. I'm a big fan of cannabis. and. Um, have used it in my business in the past, obviously on the down low, but I think first and foremost, the first thing that I think that will need to be addressed is the fact that this can't be a white washed industry that emerges when there's a social justice component that has to come first and foremost before the restaurants even get their hands on it. Um, and what I mean by that is that you're right, it's decriminalized here in New York, but there's when when it becomes legal, there will still people sit it be sitting in jail for weed, smoking it, selling it, and they're largely people of color. So while access has never been a problem in New York, I can get weed, cannabis, whatever you want to call it, delivered easier than I can get a pizza. My concern is the social justice component. Certainly it will be great to go get these fancy edibles and all that other stuff that comes from being able to. I'm a big believer in the plant. Secondly, I think as a 50-year-old white mom, I think there's an unfortunate stigma that needs to be eliminated. I, as a person that uses cannabis regularly. Me too. Yeah. I don't understand why I'm the person that has to kind of sneak around at a party and find like some somebody that I think might be cool or some dude that, you know, that we have to hide in shame, but then we have other people that are slurring their words, behaving, you know, in ways that I think would be more, you should be hiding behind the shed. You know, this idea that I have to hide all my stuff from my kid. I get it. I get that. Thank you. Thank you but for being outspoken right now. But it's, why don't all the women that come over hide their glasses of wine? Right. I don't, I don't really drink that much. I, I don't have a problem. It's not a judgment, but so I'm productive, as you can tell. I have, yes, all my businesses haven't been successful financially, but it's not because of weed. And I'm a regular user. I have been for years. All that aside, my concern about marijuana, cannabis, is largely that. Social justice first. Also making it, removing the stigma. 
But then relative to restaurants, because I do think that's an opportunity where I think when I opened Cookspace, as I said, we had this PR firm, we actually did a really great event, which had nothing to do with my core business model, which was teaching people how to, but it was also an event space. I wanted people to see because I designed it with a lot of intention around the feeling one would have when they came there, because I think cooking is a mindset. And if you feel comfortable, if you came to my house, I'd be like, hey, can you grab that? And you'd be like, yeah, you know, you versus a stiff professional kitchen. And then you think you can only do it with these tools and this. So as a way to kind of make people feel and the vibe had a great feeling, we partnered with this local service that dealt with largely the LGBT community because they had specific delivery people that were mindful of the community they were delivering to. So hired a bunch of, I mean, hired my friends, you know, nobody paid anybody. Everyone was like, I'll totally do that. We did her, you know, <laughs> but we had all infused, we infused the cocktails and, and I don't, we had a hip hop artist there. It was so fun. I mean, there was a part of me at the end of the night, I'm like, I could be hauled off to jail right now. But I, <laughs> I mean, just the amount of stuff that was happening in the night, because then smoking was happening in this, but it was an amazing evening. And had I charged for it, this was just a way to show and nobody could really geotag or do anything. But, you know, I had people there from Bon Appetit, from Goop, from New York Times, and and they wrote about Cookspace eventually in other ways, right? But related to the hospitality industry, I think, I, me personally, I wouldn't want to serve butter on the pancakes only because then you got to be worried about all the you know, the dishwashers and the kids and the the mixing it up. But what I would want to do is special events where then you don't, you, you've got it that night, you know, it's a cannabis infused dinner and you can really upcharge and you can really, cause you're not going to, no one's ever going to be able to do enough with that $2 butter charge or that $4 upcharge in a latte, but you can charge, I think a couple hundred dollars for a sit down dinner and, or more, hopefully, you know, related to the hospitality industry separate from marijuana and the future, I too am really concerned about post-COVID in the future because I don't want to necessarily see an industry that is just pivoted from COVID. I want to pivot from, it was broken already. COVID just exposed the wound. It was already broken. We already had a system where the wages weren't what they were supposed to be. We, we're not able to charge the amount to make sustainable living for the average non-corporate place. You know, the dynamics, as you talk about a lot, customers need to understand more so they can then let up a bit, right? Yeah. And be more mindful of that. What happens when you don't support a local business? Then yours gets replaced with Red Lobster or whatever is the local one that's going to come in. There are consequences to our actions. Yeah. That's so interesting that you hosted a dinner. So it's almost like you could fast forward to the future and see, and from the description, there were lots of people there from different publications in the food world. So people were receptive. Oh, totally. There's like, these dinners have been going on in New York for a while. They almost got to the point where they were boring. Even places like Brooklyn Kitchen, which was a competitor of Cookspace, it's a cooking school, they would have them on their website sort of covertly, like kind of they call them, you know, 
but it felt like, you know, Gossamer, do you know that magazine? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were had a couple dinners, you know, definitely on the DL and they were more like CBD, you know, hint, hint, wink, wink. And you're like, <laughs> <laughs> you're like, why is this CBD dinner costing me $500? Yeah, you know, or are you optional, you know, veg- silent, optional, vegetarian, you know, plant-based. Right. <laughs> but, um, Yeah. It was a, it, I think those kinds of things, just like wine dinners, right? They've been around forever. Wine pairings and cocktail pairings. Yeah. That should be an elevated level to bring that to our industry. So it's, and I think you're right to start. It's going to be um, very, uh, you know, obviously the space would have to have a license. I'll have to get a cannabis license, even if I want to have the dinners, whatever, just like a liquor license. Um and it's, but it's interesting. I think you're right. It will start as an event, you know, because it's probably going to be difficult to like, like when you said, uh, having an upcharge and da 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 da. Like, oh, is it going to be mixing with this and this? But I hope we can kind of get through that at some point, which I'm sure will take like five years or something. Um, I'm trying to. And hopefully, it won't take that long. And restaurant people, we know how to do that. Right. We know how to separate and we know how to deal yeah. with their allergies and their food and the storage right. and all that. But when you're talking about substances that were formerly illegal right. and that had like a adult kid aspect, you know, it gets a little gray. And my only thinking is that sometimes you pick your battle. You're like, how much am I going to make off of this versus kind of like, do I, can I do like some a pop-up version that doesn't require me to be a licensed regular participant. Right. You know what I mean? Not saying I want to get around the system, but as you know, with like special events, sometimes you can get a special event permit. Right. Versus being a catering hall. You know, I wonder if there's going to be some some entrees to make it a little bit more accessible since it's really not unlike a special event where you are it's private. You know what I mean? Right. Well, but that's, I, I hope it doesn't take too long. I feel like, um, I think it's a chance if in an all day business or another setting, not private to get more people to break that stigma, to normalize it. It's like, just like mommy sipping on that mimosa, mommy is, you know, drinking her $40, uh, cannabis, whatever, you know what I mean? But also unlike mommy sipping the mimosa, because mommy sipping the mimosa doesn't, kill someone when she gets in a car and it doesn't cause families to fall apart. And it's certainly everything in balance, I guess, I'm just kidding. Right. But, but there is a difference. Totally. When I say, meaning that is a form of people's like recreation and unwinding, but there is a, also a huge difference. Yeah. The behavior is different. Yeah. The consequences are different. The effects to your bodies are different. So sometimes I don't, I, even though I made the comparison initially, I don't even like to do that, but I see you on the all day aspect because if you can create a different narrative around yeah. it and if you can create a community around it, yeah. that is, you know, chill house, that place in the Lower East yeah. Side, yeah. that has like a, a real good vibe yeah. and it's not just about nails and CBD. It's about how you get treated in places like that. And why can't you go to a nail salon and get a good latte? Just like, why can't you go to an all day place like Bruce's and Son and get some THC laced coffee. Exactly. Why not? Yeah. And, you know, and it was, I remember when we put the CBD latte, Michelle, we were the first out here to put it on the menu. 
And boy, like, was it a big deal, you know? And I like, bet up out there, people are so, the towns are so difficult to navigate. That. Right. I don't even think, like, Suffolk County, ha- the health department hadn't even put anything out there. And then they did, you know, it was a very loose, you know, whatever. And I was like, all right, so it is legally fine. Like, we're going to do this. And my husband was a little bit more nervous than I was. Yeah. He was like, we're, we're going to do this? Like, he was nervous about people and what they would think and then put it on the menu and it was selling like crazy and people were like thank god you know so i think that if this happens i i think people are going to be more receptive than maybe we think yeah and i also think too your husband probably just doesn't realize that everyone's really a stoner and he doesn't (laughs) (laughs) that's what i discovered later in life (laughs) is that every time i always thought like Oh, they must not. And then you find out you're like, it's like, oh my God. Every And it's always like the ones you don't suspect. <laughs> right. He thinks everybody in Long Island is going to judge him. No, they're going to be the first in line. And he's going to be like, oh, you? Right. <laughs> well, it's exciting. It's exciting to... Uh... It is. And it's exciting because there is a social justice aspect. There is a, there, there are people that are aware of what we're talking about. There are people that are beating the stigma and there will be people like you that will be brave enough to put it on their menu and, and deal with small towns that might have perceptions. And the only way you have change is when people take risks and do things like that. But as you saw all those farms from Riverhead out, the Solaviv guy that's been buying up all the property, they're all hemp farms so they can quickly turn to cannabis. So Long Island, unfortunately, used to be a big farming hub. And when I say unfortunately, that has had a lot of failures. I think it's going to have its reemergence in cannabis, actually, with all the unused farmland. You think so, huh? I do think that there's already a lot of people that have purchased the land. Yeah. When you drive by and you see the solo bean oh, yeah. name, oh. it's not it's not a secret. I'm not exposing anything, but it's hemp now with the plan to immediately turn it to cannabis when it can be. Okay. Interesting. I mean well, I mean that part might not be public or real, but that is what I've heard and that yeah. is what seems to be the plan. And when you see all that farmland out there. Listen, I've been saying it for years. I've lived out here eight years. Uh I was always saying, I hope it's not too late in my life. Like I can totally see just like everyone's getting wasted at the vineyards on the weekends. Why not have a tasting farm? Like I could totally see smoke sessions. Yeah. Now there's also so many, you know, obviously there's, it's people forget it is a medicine. Yeah. So it's like their recreational aspects of course they're abundant, but think about it from trauma and PTSD and even things that they're studying related to some of the stuff Michael Pollan's talking about beyond cannabis. I'm talking about, you know, other plant-based drugs that help people with addictions like psilocybin and all these studies. It's a future and plants and their effect on us and our relationship to them is going to be a huge part of our culture, whether it's hospitality, food, or just life, whether we want to or not, you know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's happening. Yeah. Thankfully. Yeah, I'm telling you. (laughs) I think there'd be a lot more, less aggression, actually, if people used it. Yeah. And they'd be hungry and. Yeah. (laughs) I'd be hungry and less angry. (laughs) 
So Michelle, thank you for sharing your story with us. I always like ending by asking if there's any takeaway that you'd like to leave with listeners that can positively influence their lives. It could be something that we just discussed, a pro tip or general life advice that you live by. That was a good question. And I appreciated being asked that. Um, And as you mentioned earlier, I'm trying on the whole idea of career transition advisor, which is sort of a lofty kind of hilarious title. But I think in looking back at my career, realizing that right now I don't really know what I'm going to do. I do love the idea of bringing things to life and maybe helping other people want to transition into a more creative space. And in that, what I realize, and this is the final point of the advice, for lack of a better word, is that I feel like, myself included, that we all need to ask different and better questions. And what I mean by that is sometimes I think, particularly when we're looking to figure out what we want to do next, it's like sometimes it's the different and better question is we're, we're searching for the wrong things. You know, we think it's like a new job or a new boyfriend or a new body or a new house, but it's just normally we want a feeling You know, we want to feel valued at work or seen by our boyfriend, or we want to feel good in our body or even when, so we end up scratching the wrong itch, you know? So it's like thinking better about the questions we ask ourselves more before. And then other people, you know, like in COVID in particular, asking a question and really listening, you know, like, how are you? is kind of vague, right? But if it has a tone that actually sounds like, or what's going on with your business with COVID and then actually listening versus just kind of just swinging, you know, it doesn't, I think the questions, if we pause a little bit more for ourselves and other, will open up more. If that can leave you with that. <laughs> you, you actually just like, my mind just like blew up when you were talking because it hit me like, You're right. So often we all are searching for some change and some feeling and we, we all go through it different points of our lives. You know, we, we feel these things. And I think maybe that's why we go on vacations and we go, you know, we need a change of scenery. We need a, you know, especially in this, like everyone's got ADD these days and everyone just needs constant change, change, change. And, and you're right. Wow, that that I don't know. That just hit me on a very deep level that we're all oh, searching for something different, some change, and we do. We need to kind of chill That's out. The feeling that we're searching for, and right. it's probably right there already. Right, it's probably already right there. It's kind of like the idea. Like I love this saying. When you people are always like the grass is always greener on the other side. It's like water the grass you are standing on. Wow, that's a gem. But it's the same idea, right? It's like, what are we, what are we, what, are, what questions are we asking? What are you, we're searching out, but what do we want to feel? We can still search for that feeling, but if you get more connected, it's, it's not the things. It's never the things, is it? And I feel like sometimes we as women, even more so, I don't know if that's ingrained in us or if society puts this on us, but I feel like as a woman, you 
you fall in love, you have to get engaged. You then you get to plan your wedding if that's the type of person you and are. And then people want to know when you're going to have kids and yes. have another one. And then all this stuff, there's all this expectation for the next thing. And then are you going to work on top of that? And then are you going to be a great mom and a great? It's like, no, I right now at this age, I want to just feel some things. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That that hit me. Uh Good. You've got me thinking. <laughs> well, my planner that I mentioned, I don't, and I, my husband didn't drop it off, but I'll, I'll get one to you. It has a lot of that idea about really kind of asking ourselves, what did you feel and why? Because when you start asking yourself, I felt shitty yesterday. Why? Mm-hmm. Or I felt really good. Why? I had a good shift at work. My husband had a coffee. I had this great talk with this new woman. You start to piece together things of your life that then start to tell you a different story. Because if every day you're like, I was tired sooner or later, maybe you go to bed earlier. Right. (laughs) No, it sounds like common sense, but you're hitting. All right. You know what, listeners, if you are listening and you're like, these are hitting me, contact Michelle. If you're at a crossroads in your life, contact this woman. Like I, I started off saying oh, you're sweet. Thank she you. has a PhD in life. But honestly, when I meet people who just have gems like that, like these are just things you're saying. And I'm trying to hit that home. Like when I was emailing with her guys, like she's just naturally like, this is who you are. You're putting out gems constantly. Like this is an educated person. And I mean, an education in life on many, many levels. So thank you. Thank you. I'm blushing. <laughs> no, no, it's real. I'm, I feel your energy very strongly and I'm happy to be in your presence. So thank you. Same. I feel the same about you and I really congratulate you on this and I hope it has every success and it should. Thank you. Well, Michelle, we hate Instagram, but where can people follow I know, you? We gotta be on there <laughs> once in a while. Believe me, as I say that, I'm like, oh, it's Michelle underscore Manix. <laughs> you heard it here first, guys. No, but I do have Instagram and, the, and my website. I don't do any of the other stuff, but so is it's Michelle underscore Manix. It's Michelle underscore Manix, yes, and my website is michellemanix.com. Perfect. Well, thank you for listening. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Have You Eaten Yet? wherever you get your podcasts.